Welcome everyone to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Lupel. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. Uh, if you were not here last episode, uh, we're in the middle of responding to a episode from the White Horse Inn, a podcast on Reformed theology. Uh, Dr. Michael Horton uh, from Westminster Seminary, California, hosts the podcast. Uh, again, I greatly respect uh, him and his his um, his co-host. But I wanted to respond to a few things they said about culture and how to apply passages of the Old Testament and New Testament, I suppose, to the culture today. So if you're just tuning in for the first time, I would encourage you to go to the previous episode and kind of get caught up there because we're in the middle of their conversation on culture. But again, I'm going to play the whole thing. There's about 10 minutes left on uh, that I want to respond to, and I'll pause it intermittently and give some, some thoughts there. So with that, let's go ahead and get started. I think there's something to applaud with the zeal that people are saying, hey, we need to take our faith into the public square. We need to be distinctively Christian in our witness there. I mean, amen to that. But that's not even what that verse is talking exactly. about. It's not even in the But again, like, yeah. that's what people are yep. using this verse to do right with that sort of law you're saying they turn this you know verse that is a wonderful thing in its context for specific people to be a law for us but that's the law that they're giving with this verse right. and so while i affirm that sentiment this is not the place where we get that from another problem is and this is we highlighted this before using verses instead of submitting to yep. them and understanding yep. them but using them as kind of talismans we've talked about that let me pause there so if you're not familiar with what they were talking about, it was a passage from Second Chronicles uh, 7.14 regarding King Solomon's prayer regarding God's promise that if God's people were to repent of their sins and if they're called by his name and if they turn away from their sin and turn to him in faith, he will heal their land. The one, the one individual there was, was saying that uh, that's not really talking about getting involved in the public square. Uh, there's other passages that might speak to that topic, and I would agree with that. There are other passages that, that talk more about getting involved in your community. But uh, like I said last time, I do think that where God's people are, that is where the kingdom is. And in that space, God is redeeming that place. So uh, again, a very simple example would be Christian parents who are trying to raise their children, who, of course, might not be regenerate, but the children are in their home and the parents want to do the right thing. They've repented of their sin. Maybe they've had a, a, a pretty dark period where they have not been obeying the Lord and they want to make it right. They want to do the right thing. And so they humble themselves. Uh, their, their humility is true. Their faith is true. And they throw themselves at the feet of Christ and as a result, uh, they're asking for God to heal their family, to heal the relationships in their family, uh, and that is going to work its way out in behavior, the way people talk, the way people treat each other, the rules of the household, and it's going to impact the children in a positive way, even if the children are not regenerate and, and not truly believers themselves. So again, there's, but there is a healing that takes place in that household when that happens, and uh, so that's kind of, that's where I would stand as far as the use of this passage in any place in the world. I think it can apply not just to families, 
but it could apply to any corporate setting, business, or larger covenantal setting, such as a national covenant or, or, or a constitution. So let's continue. Here, it's using a promise that God made to Israel and applying it to the United States of America, using it almost to kind of get God in a half Nelson <laughs> and say, okay, now you've got to bless America. You've got to bless America because we, we have 2,000 people in a stadium right now praying and claiming this verse. Mm -hmm. Got to heal our land. Got to heal America. But God made no promise at all ever to the United States of America that if they kept his law, he would bless them from sea to shining sea. He, we are, as you say, taking God's name in vain. We're using God for our purposes instead of doing exactly what that verse calls us to in humility, tearing our garments, representing our hearts, and bowing in sackcloth and ashes and repenting for our own sins, not for the sins of America, you know, which means the sins those other people commit, right. yep. mm -hmm. but for my sins, really repenting of my sins. Well, let me pause there. So, again, I'm very surprised, he's, he's a Presbyterian, that he's, very, he's taking this very individualistically, that you know, as individual Christians, we can only repent of our sins. But that's not really, I don't know, I, I see more examples in Scripture of people taking responsibility for other people. I mean, certainly Daniel prayed for the sins of, of his people, Israel, and we can pray on behalf of others, and, and we should. I mean, we pray for kings and those in authority, and, and we want them to come to repentance and faith. And I do think that, that, that parents should pray for their children. Uh, certainly elders are praying on behalf of their flock. Um, and it would not be a problem for a businessman to pray for his employees. And someone might say, well, that's only applicable to the nation of Israel. Yeah, but then Job. Then you have the example of Job, because Job is not an Israelite. And he is making sacrifices on behalf of his children who don't even live with him anymore. They have their own houses, and he doesn't really know what they're doing, but he makes offering on their behalf just in case they might have sinned. And so I do think that there is a sense in which God's people can come to the Lord in repentance and faith on behalf of others. That doesn't mean that the other people are regenerate. It doesn't mean that. But God wants us to be more than just individualistic when we come before the throne of God in prayer and repentance. Now, he is correct that you, we must not, we must not use any passage as a talisman, uh, kind of like, I'm forcing you, God, to do this thing for me. But like I mentioned last time, God reveals his nature and what he intends to do and how he operates his character in Scripture. And so when God says, look, if you do this, this is how I respond. This is how I respond to pride. If you are prideful, I will humble you. I will tear you down. I will destroy you. If you are humble, I will lift you up. I will raise you up and I will elevate you. Okay, and Jesus reiterates that principle as well uh, about if you're at someone's dinner, uh, don't put yourself in the seat of honor because it would be very, very shameful for them to say, no, 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 you go sit in the corner. 
it's better to put yourself in the place of dishonor and have them come and, and call you to come up and, and be more in a place of honor. So the point is that God honors that kind of behavior. But we understand as Christians that you can't take it and use it as a law and say, okay, now I'm going to force myself to be humble. I'm going to really work hard and I'm going to play the humble game and I'm going to make God give me what I want. Well, God's going to see right through that. That's not true humility. So the thing is you can't fake it and you can't trick God. You can deceive yourself, but you can't deceive God. So true humility and true repentance, God is going to honor that. He has said so, okay? And you can trust in God's character that he's not arbitrary and he's not just going to smite you randomly uh, regardless of what you do, regardless of whether or not his spirit is working in you, you know, that, that's, that's the fearfulness of Allah. That's the omnipotence and arbitrariness of pure power of Allah. And the God of the Bible is not like the God of Islam. Uh, he has a character and he tells us what we can expect him to act like. So, True, we would not take a passage and say, okay, America is Israel, therefore you must bless us. No, what we might say is God's people are everywhere, and there are people of God in America, and we want America as a nation to turn to the Lord, just like I would want to Ukraine or Russia or China, North Korea, South Korea. These entities do exist. They are they are contractual, covenantal, corporate entities. They do exist. They are not arbitrary. And as Americans, which we have an American identity, it's always in subservience to our Christian identity. But just like I have an identity as a as a pilot or as a you know military person or as a father, husband, uh, member of you know this county, Pennsylvania, whatever, you have multiple identities and those are all in submission to our identity as as Christians. But those identities are real. And we should want our fellow Americans to repent and turn to faith, not because they are the new Israel, not at all, because they need to repent or else they will face judgment and they deserve judgment. And what they should want is mercy from God. And that's only going to come from true repentance. And that's what we want them to do. And as a result, there will be a healing that takes place where God's people are. So I think that they're kind of oversimplifying how we might approach that passage and apply it. And I don't know of how many people are actually saying, like, America is the new Israel, but I don't think they're giving a fair treatment of that position. Well, let's continue. And that doesn't mean he's going to heal America. It means he's going to he's going to heal me and my family and forgive my sins. And I can't think of a greater example of the absolute opposite application. <laughs> That's right. Well, hold on a second. He just said he's going to heal my family. For you. You're going to pray for your family? You're going to pray for God to forgive your corporate entity of your family, even though some of your children may not be regenerate and, and might not even be elect. So, if, again, you can't have it both ways. You can't say that all we can do is repent of our sins and we're done. And then say, but my family can be healed because of my repentance as a, a leader in my household. Well, it's either individual or it's corporate. But the debate is, 
Does the corporate level stop at the family? Is that the limit? And God says, I only honor corporate prayer on behalf of families, but I will not go beyond that to communities, to businesses, or to countries, to nations. And I I don't see anywhere in Scripture where God says that he only operates at the family level and never goes above and beyond to the next level. So uh, let's continue. And people using this for Christian America. Well, we want Christian America. We want every nation to be Christian, every nation on this planet. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but that is our desire. Our desire is to see uh, people saved, as many people as possible. Oh, well, if that were to happen to the nth degree, then we could say that a nation should be Christian in the sense that it is led by Christian leaders and it runs on Christian principles and the people within it embrace Christ as Savior. It's not impossible. It certainly hasn't happened very often so far in history, but God has done amazing things in many different nations in different periods of time. So we can't say that it never happens and never could happen. Now, I do think it's probably worth saying we still, as Christians living in America or wherever country we find ourselves, we are still called to pray for the good of the nation. We're called to Mm -hmm. pray for our leaders. There are verses, Romans 13 comes to mind, where you're encouraged to do these things. I mean, Paul says, let's respect the leaders in Romans 13 while they're throwing him in jail. If we look at the Roman Empire, they did pretty well. They lasted for mm-hmm. a year or two, and it wasn't because of their faithfulness to Jesus. I right. think we can say that. You know, I've read an interesting article recently, uh, and in fact, I think when uh, I've been reading Augustine's City of God as well, so I've been reading multiple things about the late Roman Empire. Um, but one thing of note, though, is that he says, you know, they lasted a little bit and not because of Jesus. You know, I kind of wonder about that because even Augustine made the argument that God had been so merciful to Rome, mostly because of the presence of God's people. Augustine even brings that up. Um, He mentions that. I think he makes that reference when discussing the recent sack of Rome. So Rome had been attacked and conquered, uh, I think, by the Vandals. Um, It could have been the Visigoths. I don't remember. Uh, Forgive me for not knowing that historical uh, fact there. But the point is, is that it had just happened recently when when Augustine wrote the City of God and the pagans were essentially blaming the Christians. And Augustine points out that it was because of God's protection and the presence of the Christians that it wasn't as bad as it could have been and that Rome, uh, Rome was spared a lot of destruction. Because of, because of the presence of, of the Christians. And he then says that the fact that the empire lasted as long as it did uh, is, is likely a result of the presence of the gospel going forward and Christianity spreading throughout the empire and, and basically restraining some of the wickedness that was happening uh, in the empire, certainly, certainly during the time of the apostles. But then, you know, by 300 years later, uh, you have some Christian emperors, and the gospel is going forth. Um, and Augustine made the argument that God preserved the empire because of the impact of Christianity. So, yes, the empire 
grew and was very strong and, and was very successful without God. But an argument could be made that God's mercy uh, was bestowed upon it for such a long period of time because of the faithfulness of many of its citizens. God's going to do what he's going to do with the nations. All we can do is find ourselves as Christians in those places to proclaim his mercies. And if the church is to rent its garments and repent for anything, it's for preaching something besides Jesus. Yep. Well, now he says that God's going to do what he does with the nations. And again, that sounds seemingly so arbitrary, um, but we actually have guidance from God himself about what he's going to do with the nations. So uh, just one example of this is Jeremiah chapter 18. So Ezekiel 18 talks about an individual, talks about if this man, uh, his father is wicked and his father does all these things, but if he doesn't do those things, God will have mercy upon him. God does not put the son to death because of the sins of the father. But then in Jeremiah 18, it's kind of more corporate. And here's what God says uh, in verse 5. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Now in verse 7, he talks about more than Israel. Here's what he says. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do it. So let's stop there. God is saying, this is how I treat the nations. Any nation, any kingdom, this is how I treat them. I raise many up. I build them up. They don't listen to my voice. All right, then disaster will come. And then look at this nation. I declare, I'm going to destroy that nation. I'm going to tear it down. They repent. I'm going to show mercy. So God does deal with the nations in a corporate setting. And he's told us that he's not arbitrary. Now that repentance, of course, has to be real. It can't be fake. can't be forced repentance. But the point is that God shows us how he operates in our world. And any nation on this planet could read Jeremiah 18, any leader on this planet, and any leader on this planet should, Kim Jong-un should read Jeremiah 18. President Xi Jinping of China should read Jeremiah 18 and think about what it says. And hopefully we pray that they would repent in true faith and ask for God's mercy and forgiveness. So, it's not just God will do what he does with the nations. He's told us how he treats them. It's not arbitrary, and we have no clue what's going on as if at any moment, you know, destruction could happen or blessing could happen. It doesn't really matter. No one really cares, and no one really knows. Um, but like he said, we should be praying for our nation because we're part of our nation, and there's a corporate sense in which uh, our prayers matter. Let's continue. Yeah, Jeremiah 29 again comes yeah. to mind. Jeremiah's letter to the exiles in Babylon. What you should do is pray mm -hmm. for the city. Yeah. Pray not that Babylon will inherit the promises that God gave to Israel. Just pray for the city because in its welfare, you will find welfare. Well, but what are you praying for? You, you know, not that it's going to get the promises of Israel, but God even said 
11 chapters earlier in Jeremiah 18, if a nation does not listen to my voice. What voice, what, what is God speaking to the nations? Is he only speaking to Israel or is his word applicable to the other nations too? It seems like God is saying those nations have a choice to either listen to my word or to reject my word. And if they reject it, judgment comes. Yeah, and what are they what are we praying for? We're praying we're not just praying that things go well, not just praying for wealth and health and things like that. We're praying for their repentance. Okay, because we understand that it would go much better for them, of course, eternally better for them if they repent, but also that as a nation, it would be better for them if they repent. We want parents to repent because we do care about their children. You know, even even like, you know, little babies, you want little babies to repent? Of course we do. We want to pray for their salvation too. But we do pray for those parents to repent so that those young children won't have abusive, murderous, alcoholic, you know, whatever parents. And in the same way, we pray for our rulers because we want them to stop mistreating their people. That's one of the things that we want. Of course, we want their soul to be saved, but we also want uh, less evil being done. And in this, one of the things that troubled me with this, as we're sort of conflating our own country, America, with Israel, is that it makes the church a bit player in this whole thing. Yeah. The primary goal is this sort of civil realm. And then also there's this leader who's this sort of Christian prince that emerges that we then sort of laud rather than Christ himself. Well, I don't... I don't understand that. I mean, a Christian, the Christian prince. We're not asking for a messianic figure now. Of course, if people are, if people are doing that, that's a big problem. But we should want all civil magistrates to be Christian. And you know, the the proverb says that uh, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. Okay. And there's another proverb that speaks about uh, they, people groan under wicked rulers. Uh, but they rejoice when those rulers are removed from them. And it is a blessing to have a righteous ruler, and we should we should ask for that. Just like it's a blessing to work for a Christian boss, I mean, a truly Christian boss, someone who really cares for uh, his employees and uh, is trying to honor the Lord as, as a CEO or leader of a corporation. Just like children should want Christian parents. Anybody who's under authority should want the people in authority to be Christian. So we want the princes if we have princes, to be Christian. We want the mayors and the commissioners and the governors and the presidents uh, to all be Christian. And we should want that. We should not worship it. We should not seek their help as if they are a Messiah or a Savior. But we do want them, and we should yearn for them because in them we have a sense of earthly peace and justice and stability so that we can worship the Lord and spread the gospel in stability and peace. We have to, you know, get behind God's man and then put him in office or just whatever it is. It becomes more about a person who is not the God man than the God man himself. I don't understand that. Again, you don't want to elevate the person above Christ. That is a hundred percent true. What we do is we want that person to submit to Christ. We want that ruler, whoever that person is, running for office, and and we should get behind. You know, if someone says, hey, I want to run for office and I submit to Jesus as my Lord and I want to administer justice and uh, I want to do the right thing as a leader, well, we should get behind that person and we should 
desire for them to win the election or whatever the case may be. It doesn't mean that we are bowing down and worshiping them or that we don't, you know, think about Jesus. No, the whole point is, is that we want that person because that person thinks about Jesus. That's what we want. We're thinking about Jesus, and we want that person to think about Jesus, and that's why we're picking them, okay? So we don't want them to not think about Jesus, and if that person is not thinking about Jesus, we don't want to pick them, okay? So that's, that's I think, the key point here. Let me ask this then, and I'll play the devil's advocate here because this is not my perspective at all, but there are some Christians who would come along and say, well, now hold on. We are called, after all, to go forth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you get this, I think it would be sort of a theonomist move to say the church is responsible for baptizing nations. And so America's a nation, we should baptize it. I guess my cynical response would be, like full immersion, or are we just sprinkling the <laughs> and the we're in country Acts as a nation? Yeah, baptized? exactly. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it'd be full immersion, but I mean, this is not my position. <laughs> okay, the, the tongue in cheek stuff—that's a low blow. I mean, I respect these guys greatly, but that's real. Could you imagine uh, the kind of mockery? Like, think about that. Think about you're one of you're with the disciples, and Jesus is about ready to to leave. Okay, so so no nation has been discipled yet, not one. Now. There's several nations at the time of Jesus' ascension. The biggest one is Rome, the Roman Empire, all right? The Romans. So Jesus tells the disciples to go baptize the nations. Now, I could imagine one of the disciples being a little cheeky and saying, well, Jesus, I mean, that's a lot of water needed to baptize. These guys are, I mean, would they be mocking Christ himself if he said that to them? I mean, you could imagine one of the disciples being a little cheeky and saying that, and but no, Jesus meant what he said, and it's it is a I think it's disingenuous to start saying, well, you know, is it a fire hose? It's a lot of water to baptize an entire nation. We got to dunk uh, ten million people. Well, guess what? In about three hundred years after Jesus, the Roman Empire, in many ways, was Christianized. So that, that take it took a while. Yes, you do baptize nations one person at a time, and over time, you get them all. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Let's continue. <laughs> you know, it's not it's the all nations piece. I mean, if we're looking at the Greek, this is ethnos. This is not to do with geopolitical Great. borders and boundaries. Peoples. This, yeah, this is peoples. And so this is about making disciples of all kinds of peoples, of peoples from families of all the earth. Stop. Stop, stop, stop. It's not just about families. Okay, there is a word for family, but it is nations, and nations are not just families, all right? And in fact, what does Paul say when he's in the Areopagus, okay, talking to the Greeks? He says in Acts 17, verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. All right, so Paul is talking about nations, the same word, ethnos, and he's talking about determined periods of time living on the face of the earth with boundaries of their dwelling place. That's not just families. That, 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 that's not. That is something bigger than that. I mean, I get that the modern nation state is a little different than how nations were viewed back then, but it's not 
that much different. A nation is a commonwealth of people. And St. Augustine, he said that a commonwealth is a people who are united by a common love. What makes a random group of people different from a nation? Because you could take all 300 million people living in the continental United States and just plop them somewhere, right? What makes those people a nation? It's essentially the, f- the fact that they've covenanted together. They've, they're operating with a common love under a common covenant amongst themselves. I'm not necessarily saying it's a covenant with God, but they have covenanted among themselves that they're going to work together for a common good and that they share a common love. And that's what forms a nation. And it's not necessarily race-related. Certainly the Roman Empire wasn't a, a pure racial empire, but it was a nation. And America is a nation too, uh, made up of multiple families as well, but it is a nation. Ukraine is a nation. South Korea is a nation. But there are multiple tribes, even within those smaller, quote-unquote, ethnically pure nations. But there are tribes there. Uh, and, and there are places where the picture of nations, maybe even modern nations, comes to mind. Just consider Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus talks about the end right? Here's what he says in 24 verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then earlier though, he talks about nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. That's not family against family. I mean, it's it's bigger than that, right? And what does he mean when he says that you'll be hated by all nations, by all individuals in all nations or by all families in all nations. No, there, there's something about nationhood that is being discussed in, in the Bible that's, I think, more than, than what these guys here on this uh, episode are, are granting. So I think that's an important point. That's what this is about. So again, the Great Commission, as we're seeing like in Matthew 28, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the triune God. We're not raising a contemporary nation. We are somewhere above the sort of kingdom reality right. of all God's children, of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. It really is that God is saying, no, there is a kingdom that is, that is established that we're now welcoming people from all ethnies all kinds of people, all kinds of tribes, all families into. But this, but there's still going to be nations. And we have to then dive into the difference between a nation that the apostles and Jesus are talking about and a modern nation. I don't think there's that much of a difference because the ancient nations, they weren't always purely ethnic-based. I mean, some of them were, like like the Greeks and maybe the Romans initially, but then they incorporated a whole bunch of other groups into their empire. And then the Persian Empire was definitely a mix of the the Medes and the Persians. That was two different people groups that formed uh, a nation, if you will. And the Babylonians, well, they, they even had various uh, groups among them, and they had boundaries, and they had go- uh, functioning governments. So, it's not that far removed than the modern nation state. I, I don't I don't really see that much of a difference. And I think that that's worth talking about. I think the term for this is post-millennialism. The idea that things are going to be get better and better instead of premillennialism, things are going to get worse and worse through this mission of the Great Commission. We're going to teach the nations and 
they'll become prosperous, they'll become blessed nations of the Lord, and then after this, Christ will return. Well, that is a, that is a version of postmillennialism, and I guess I'm, what I understand here is they don't agree with that. They also already kind of criticize theonomy. Um, that's another topic of another day. You know, what law should nations live by? If it's not God's law, what should it be? Um, as far as post-millennialism, uh, even if you're not a post-millennial, the, the point is, is that you want, you still want the gospel to spread. The millennial positions are really more describing what God is going to do or what's going to happen prior to the return of Christ, but it doesn't really affect what we should want to happen. Even the even the premillennial uh, person that holds to a rapture and that things are only things are only going to get worse and worse, that person still might want to see as many people as possible saved. And even if you hold to a premillennial position. Uh, an argument could be made that it, you know, maybe maybe at the end it's going to be really, really bad, but we're not at the end yet. We're not quite there yet. You know, maybe there's a few more, uh, you know, ups and downs before we get to the very, very end when there's no Christians left. You know, maybe we still get a couple centuries of a Christian China or a Christian South Korea or a Christian Kenya or, you know, pick pick a country that becomes Christianized in a window of time before things get really, really bad. So you don't have to be a post-millennial to want all the people, as many as possible, to be saved. Okay, You want the nations to be saved. Whether that happens or not, that is the discussion amongst the millennial positions. So I don't think that's relevant to this topic. Although I will say, Jesus did use several analogies that are all about slow growth over time. The analogy of the kingdom of God being like a mustard seed that grows into a large tree, or like yeast that's sown into a loaf of bread, all right, until it spreads throughout the entire loaf. And then Daniel also talks about, in the Old Testament, the small stone not made of human hands that grows to fill the whole earth the size of a of a mountain. So slow growth over time, spread of the gospel, the post-millennial position does have an argument as to why it believes that there will be slow growth of the gospel over time. And that growth does have an impact on how those nations behave and treat themselves and others. So that's post-millennialism. And you have, for instance, Peter Lightheart saying the following in his book, Baptizing the Nations. When a nation is baptized, again, I'm trying to find out what that would look like. That would be quite a a lot of fire hoses. That is really just not, that's not necessary. A lot of fire hoses. Again, you could say the same thing if you were a disciple standing in front of Jesus when he says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. You know, it's like, well, Jesus, I'm going to need a lot of hoses. I'm going to need a lot of buckets. Disciple the nations. Man, Jesus, I don't have enough time. That's a lot of, that's a lot of students. I can't handle that. My goodness, Jesus. How can I, I came and disciple one person. How can I disciple a million people? There's not enough hours in the day. I mean, you could be ridiculous like that if you want to, but that that's really unhelpful. So we're almost done here. I uh, just have a few more clips to play, and then we'll wrap up. What really troubles me about this is not just the way he interprets nations, 
but the way the word baptize isn't translated, because now it doesn't actually mean water baptism. It's referring to something entirely different, right. right? I mean, and this right. is, so the whole verse is kind of turned on its head. Anyways. Possibly. We have to have uh, Peter on to talk about what he means by that, but I'd be very surprised if he took a merely symbolic view of yeah, baptism. Oh, sure. I assume he's talking about leaders being baptized and then the leaders, I mean, this is sort of what happened in Christendom. I have not read Lightheart's work on this. I don't think it's that complicated as far as what does Jesus mean when he says baptize the nations? Is he is he mean that literally, like take them all into a pool, all millions of them and dunk them all? Or is it just purely symbolic? I don't think it has to be either or. I mean, it's over time that you're discipling, you're discipling the nations. Okay, well, we could do the same thing to the word disciple. What does that mean? Do we, do we round up all 300 million Americans in a classroom and start teaching them? Uh, no. That's not what that means, but it does mean teaching that, that, you know, actual instruction is part of discipling and actual baptism is part of baptizing. So I just think it means you want to go to every single nation, you want to share the gospel, you want to make disciples, and your goal is to see that tribe or that people group or that nation or that kingdom, you want to see the people in those spaces be saved. And that will happen over time, God willing. The Christianizing. The Christianizing. Baptism just means Christianizing yeah, of the culture. Yeah. Which is, a, I think, a very terrible connotation of baptism that has anything to do with political force. But when a nation is baptized, the Father calls that nation beloved son. Can you... Um, the title for Jesus Christ calls that nation beloved son, as he once said, beloved son over Israel, Exodus 4.23. So instead of Exodus 4.23 foreshadowing Christ as the greater beloved son, any and every nation yeah. becomes the fulfillment of that type that Israel represented. Now, I don't agree with Lightheart on that, too. I, I would not put it that way. Uh, I think that the only... Only God's people are sons and daughters of God. The covenant people of God under the new covenant, if you're in Christ, you are a son and daughter of God. I wouldn't really say that like the nation is God's son, but that nation can have many sons and daughters of God within it, and that would be a blessing. It would be good for that nation if it had a lot of sons and daughters of God. So it's still promise and fulfillment, but it's promise with Israel as the type and fulfillment as America or any other nation. That is the anti-type. Yeah, I would not. I, I agree. I don't. I would not make that claim. I would not say that a modern nation is the anti-type or the fulfillment of the, of the type. No, no, Christ is the fulfillment. These guys are 100% correct um, about this point here. So if, if Lightheart is, is arguing something different than I would certainly stand with them against Lightheart. But again, I haven't read Lightheart's work. I'm just going off of what they are saying here. It's like the reverse or the opposite of the dispensational problem, which dispensationalist says the Bible is about Israel and then it's about the church. This says it's about Israel and then the rest of the world. I think at this table, we're all going to argue the Bible's about Jesus. <laughs> like Jesus, Jesus is suddenly like removed yeah. from the conversation. Exactly. The whole text has been about him from the beginning. Yeah, he continues, all na national sons of God, again, I I'm not familiar with these phrases anywhere in the Bible, all national sons of God are to be reborn in baptism 
as Psalm 87 prophesies, Rehab, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, and Ethiopia will be claimed as homeborn children of Zion. This one and that one were born in her. Yes, this one and that one were born in her. Not the whole nations, but people from every tribe and kindred and tongue and people and nation, as Revelation 5.9 puts it. Anyway, he concludes, the other aspect of Jesus' baptism also applies to nations. In baptizing a nation, the church confers purpose on nations, incorporating them into Jesus' messianic mission. Well, I, again, I don't know exactly what Lightheart is referring to with that. I would say that a lot of nations that are in darkness, they don't have a greater purpose. And those leaders, they all have their own purposes in mind. And many of them are quite nefarious. So we would hope that if a nation and its rulers become Christians, that as they look to Christ as their Lord, that will give them guidance as to how they're supposed to behave themselves. What should a nation do? Should a nation be a bully? Or should a nation be a good neighbor? How should a nation behave with other nations? And becoming a Christian and looking to God's word is going to give us guidance. Again, Prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 18, the nation needs to listen to God's word. And if it doesn't, God's going to bring judgment. Uh, so we want the nations to listen to God's word. And in that sense, I would say the church gives guidance. But I, I don't know exactly what Lightheart means by this. So I would kind of lean with, with these guys against that because it makes it seem a little bit kind of weird. Wow. Evangelism is, and I'm not trying to be snarky, evangelism has worked into foreign policy, right? Like the spreading of democracy goes hand in hand with the preaching of the gospel or something like this. Well, and that was actually Woodrow Wilson's administration. Right. It doesn't end well. You, you end up conflating something that's supposed to free people, the gospel, with something that, you know, I mean, spreading democracy, I think is actually probably a pretty good thing. But democracy is not the gospel. And if you go to a country that doesn't have democracy, that doesn't mean they can't have the gospel. Like, it gets very messy. I don't think Lightheart is saying that. I mean, I don't think Lightheart is saying that it, democracy has replaced the gospel. I think Lightheart is saying, from, from what I what I heard them quoting, is that, yes, the role of the civil government is to help with the mission of the church of discipling the nations. That's what I heard them saying. So that's kind of more, in my mind, that I think of the government uh, subsidizing uh, churches or church plants or missionaries uh, or printing Bibles using tax dollars and, and sending those Bibles into those countries. Yeah, I don't really see Lightheart saying that democracy has replaced the gospel. I think they're misunderstanding what Lightheart is saying. I think that what he's saying is the government should help the church in its mission. Now, that is a debatable topic. You know, there's some interesting scenarios that we could consider. An example would be, does a civil government, if there are Christian missionaries that are going into a dangerous place and they get kidnapped or arrested, should the civil government of that home nation rescue them? Is that helping the gospel? Because I'll tell you, honestly, in my career, there have been times where either myself, my unit, or other units were supporting missionaries that were kidnapped. Christian missionaries that were kidnapped by terrorists, and we were helping to find them using military equipment and tax dollars. 
That's nothing new. That's happened before. Now, now maybe you could say, well, that's just America agrees to rescue its citizens that are trapped in other countries. That's fair. But these citizens didn't have to go and do charitable missionary work in those countries. So our government could say, well, we only, we're only going to rescue people who are doing secular activities, like they're on business or vacation. We're not going to rescue individuals that are doing missionary work and purposely putting themselves in harm's way. That's just stupid. So where is the line as far as a civil government helping or assisting the church in accomplishing its mission? I'm not saying we're going to solve that, answer that question today, but that is a question that needs to be asked. Another example would be chaplains, military chaplains. So you're telling me that the United States government pays Christians to provide spiritual guidance and the gospel among its military members. It pays them to do that. This whole separation of church and state thing, how does that work with military chaplains? And these chaplains are wearing crosses on their uniform, and the government is paying for that uniform. That seems a little strange, right? So we need to know what the line is as far as civil government involvement in, in with the church's mission of discipling the nations. It's not so clear, and there is some overlap. And so I would say that that's worth discussing a bit further. When Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, of course, that's all authority, even over Caesar. But the question is how he uses that authority. He uses that authority not to take petty little power over creating constitutions and leading armies, but all power in heaven and earth to what? To save people. So go into all the world and preach the gospel, not go into all the world and take over the economies and so on and so forth. This I'm going to have to do a hard disagree here. This is going to be a hard disagree uh, with all due respect. To say that Jesus is not interested in petty things like armies and constitutions, but you're saying he's interested in petty things like how fathers parent their children. Is Jesus interested in how you run your business as a Christian business owner? Is he interested in a Christian farmer and how that farmer farms or a hairdresser and how that person cuts hair? I would say that Jesus is interested in all of those things. And if he's interested in the little things, he's also interested in the big things. He is interested in Caesar and what he has to do. So I think that's not correct to say that he's not interested in petty things like armies and constitutions uh, because... I mean, he's interested in every little thing that we, that everything that we say and do, we're supposed to do to the glory of God. And I would say that applies to the lowest private in the smallest army, to the greatest general in, within the greatest military. And that applies to people that are forming a constitution, and it applies to two people that are getting married. Both are covenants. A constitution is covenant. And marriage is a covenant. And I think God cares about all of those things. And I understand we're to go on all the world and preach the gospel, not necessarily change, take over the economy. But if you preach the gospel, it should have an impact on the economy. An example would be Acts 19 with Demetrius the silversmith, who's having a hard time making ends meet because people aren't buying his idols of Artemis anymore, his silver idols. And he's kind of upset about it, and he's going to the civil government complaining that this gospel thing is impacting his bottom line, and rightfully so. Maybe he should change his business model and stop selling silver idols, and maybe 
he should start making silver candlesticks or something like that. But the point is, is that the gospel is going to impact the economy. It's, we're not saying that we're, we're spreading the gospel in order to change the economy. It's not like, man, I really want this economy to change. Let's use the gospel to do it. No, I really want these people to stop sinning. And I really want them to turn to the Lord in repentance and faith and live in accordance with God's word. And guess what's going to happen after that? The fruit of that is going to be a change in a lot of things, including the economy. So they move on to another topic, the topic of pacifism, but I didn't really, uh, I, I wanted to stop there. I wanted to focus more on the on the topics of, uh, of Christian culture and Christianizing the nations. So this one went a little bit, lo- little bit long, but I wanted to make sure I finished it. And so again, I encourage you to listen to the whole episode from the White Horse Inn and look at scripture and, you know, reach your own conclusions as to how do we apply passages of scripture to the culture today and should we even do that? So uh, again, if you have any questions, comments, or topics related to this one, please email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com or go on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and you can look for Governed by God or the GBG Podcast and message me there. And if you enjoy what we're talking about and want to support the podcast, please go to patreon.com, look for Governed by God, and sign up to be a patron. I would greatly appreciate that. But with that said... Thank you for joining me today, and until next time, take care and God bless.